0: Good morning. Now on Radio 3, Hong Kong Heritage with Annie-Marie Evans.
1: Hello and welcome to a special extended holiday, Hong Kong Heritage. And here's wishing you a very happy mid-autumn festival. There's been several boxes of mooncakes in the office this week though often they've been with custard and less traditional fillings. I love the artwork that goes into the boxes and packaging, as well as the baked tops of the mooncakes and the background to all the ingredients. Do have a look at our RTHK News website for a video of a local bakery in Shamshoi Po that specialises in mooncakes at this time of year, and theirs even have meat in them. More on mooncakes in a moment. In this week's programme, I'm talking with jeweller Sonny Coe, who's based at the Prudential Centre in Jordan. He's been in the family jewellery business since 1976, when he joined his mother, father and brother when they started out in the old Miramar Hotel. Sonny, with his fellow artisans, specialises in handmade jewellery. His parents came here from Fujian province and his father was a carver of wood,
2: ivory and jade. He mainly do carving the figures, like old man, warrior and fisherman. Yeah, and he very particular. He like to be the well-finished. If not well-finished, even the time coming for shipping, he won't give it up.
1: Sonny Co also talks to me about how he and his wife have been celebrating this weekend, even making their own traditional dumplings. Later in the programme, I'll be looking back at some memories from interviews past to celebrate my 25 years of producing and presenting Hong Kong heritage. But first, back to those mooncakes. And where do they come from? Well, it depends on what research you do, but some accounts take mooncakes right back 3000 years. The first ones, where I'm reading, that were described are called shi Cakes, and then these developed into Hu Cakes, a version made with sesame seeds and walnuts, traded from western parts of China. Then we move on to the Tang Dynasty, when a general vanquished the Turks in battle, and apparently a Tibetan trader offered the general these round cakes, which were then introduced more widely in the population. Later on, they were used to overthrow a brutal dynasty when the resistance used mooncakes to pass messages. I had a good look through my custard filled mooncake this week, but there was no message in mine. Traditionally, in Chinese culture, the fact that the mooncake is round also signifies completeness and reunion when the family comes together for the moon festival. What's inside a Chinese mooncake? Traditionally, mooncakes are rich cake filled with a sweet paste made with lotus seeds and a salty egg, often a duck's egg. So that's the mooncake. And we'll also talk about some of the other traditions of mid-autumn festival later in the programme. So... Let me introduce you now to jeweler Sunny Co.
2: We are here nearly six years. Before have been in Miramar Hotel for over 34 years, and then the second move to Silvercourt and then to Modi Row. This is the fourth place we have been staying, yeah. So you've always been Kowloon? Yes, always, always here,
1: yeah, this side. <laughs> what do you like about this side?
2: Uh, I. Don't know. We will always live here. So, but only thing. Sometimes I go to Hong Kong Island, but they have many slope. I think Kowloon is good, flat. It's nice
1: and flat to walk on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good to That's move true. around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Hong Kong with Ladder Street and everything yes, is much harder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. So you started out in the jewellery industry, but that was really following your father.
2: Yes, father and then brother and mother, you know, family together. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So
1: let's go right back. Your father, if you can tell me his name, and where did he come from? Oh,
2: he, he is from Fuzhou, 15, yeah. On 1956, yeah, he... He get the permission to come out, not you know swimming or whatever, you know, and then come out here, and then brother born in Fuzhou, and then come here, and me born in 1959. So yeah. So you're bo- you're a Hong Kong boy. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Study here. Yeah, grown up here all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what was your father's name? Uh, father's name is Au Chun Yik. Yeah, and he he is a good craftsman. Yeah, yeah, tell me
1: about that. He So, what
2: sort of things did he carve? Uh, before in China, they mostly carved the wood, the expensive wood figures, and he is very skillful. You know, and they on competition, he win the second prize for the whole poem, Fuzhou poem province province. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And how do you know? Did your father ever say how he got started with wood carving? I, did he do an apprenticeship
2: or? No, I think it's the it's in the village there. They have the traditional of the carving, and, and then did you learn from there? Yeah. And
1: where did he grow up? Was it in the countryside or by the sea?
2: Uh, no, no, no. In in the town, in the main city. Fuzhou. 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 Okay, Fuzhou. Right, Fuzhou. Right
1: and uh, so he becomes he starts off carving wood yeah but later on he would also be carving
2: ivory ivory yeah when he come hong kong in hong kong at that time in 1960 you know 50 60s is popular with ivory and i mean ivory they carve also they can be export to all many countries at that time no restrictions so. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, he moves
1: yeah. from wood to, to yeah, ivory, ivory. But, I mean, yeah. ivory, of course, is elephant tusk. And that yes. would be, I would imagine, an extremely hard material.
2: Uh, no, oh. it's OK. It's, yeah, they, they used a the similar tooth. and yeah, to, So, like wood? Yeah, harder than wood, a little bit. Yeah, right?
1: And yeah. what would he make, sort of animal figurines?
2: Uh, no, he mainly do carving the figures, yeah. like old man, uh, warrior and fishermen, yeah, and he very particular. He likes to be the well-finished. If not well-finished, even the time coming for shipping, he won't give it up. Just keep doing till he thinks it's good. So
1: quite yeah. the perfectionist.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has also, in Hong Kong, trained few younger, new people to how to carve, you know. They call him the master you know, so he's very. But he, he was called Master Master Chun Yeah, they they don't give, put the first name on there. They call Master Chun Yik, So it's the.
1: So when you were growing up, and he used to be doing his work, was yeah. he sitting at a table at home, or did he have a little workshop? Or? Uh,
2: no, no, at home, at oh, home. Yeah, at yeah, home? yeah. Work at home. Work at home. Did you at have enough time. light? Uh. Have been moved one time the light not enough and yeah. then we moved to a higher floor to the seventh floor so that would help yeah 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 yeah. yeah. But for the daylight for the daylight yeah, oh, yeah for the yeah. daylight and and he teach us he say do everything do it right before you hand it out you don't just nearly okay it's not okay so it's good good learning from him yeah. So when
1: you recall, so you would be getting up, going to school. Yeah. Um, your father, he would then have a table at home, or yeah, and all his tools. Yes,
2: he has a tube at home, and also later, you know, they they have a place for carve together.
1: He starts off presumably yeah. as one man doing this, but then does he build up a business of several of them?
2: Uh, mostly, is he take the job, right. like. Some people they import lots of ivory in and then they would give to father and he would collect them and then he would carve. But, and then getting more work and then he trained the younger newcomer to carve. So where were you born? Mong Sin, I think, uh, at that time. One time. We have been few moved and then moved to Dongtao village and then to Jordan here.
1: Yeah, now, Dungtao yeah. Village, you've described to me how they were the, would you say, the second lot of yes. resettlement flats.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like an H design. It's an H design. How many? Ten, fourteen in one side. Forty, forty-two. One on each end. Yeah, and we can run all around there. And public bathroom, public toilet.
1: When you're growing up, you have this early public housing estate, yeah, really. So, yeah. can I ask, what year are you born?
2: Uh, 1959.
1: So you're moving into this in the 1960s? 62,
2: 63, around like that. So yeah. that's
1: where you grow up. Yeah. And um, now, during your childhood, you would have had, as you say, you're on the seventh floor, which means you would have had a walk-up? Oh,
2: every day, run <laughs> up and down, up and down. How many times? Many times, but still okay, yeah. <laughs> and then Very, you would, yeah.
1: then you would play outside? Yes. What,
2: football or games? Football, most of the time football, but mother don't let us out of the block because it's dangerous, you know, the car or like that. So just run around and go to labor's home and like that, yeah? So it's time go fast. (laughs)
1: I'm talking mm. with jeweler Sunny Co today. We're sitting in the Prudential Centre in Jordan now. When you're playing with your friends, as you say, the structure of these H early public housing estates, where that you would have a flat, an open room for you and your relatives. Yeah. So, how did you sort out? You, you described about your dad's working area, yeah. but where did you sleep? Oh,
2: in the we have the double bed. Yeah, the, the we, bed. We bed yeah. Bed. yeah, yeah. So we sleep together. At that time, I think even they have a work in Hong Kong. They say one bed with ten people sleeping. You know that is usual. Yeah, you know? and we have four brothers and father and mother. Yeah, so, so four okay. of it, four boys there. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And you're the second. Second, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, brother Tony is the number one, and then Gary, Brandy, yeah.
1: Now, if you were on the seventh floor, did you actually at that time have any school on the roof? What did you have on the roof? Was there any
2: school there? Uh, yes, on our block, have. At that time, yes, popular. I the think the rooftop we, schools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I can remember, I think I go to the K kindergarten on the top floor, but not on our fret, not on our block. Yeah, growing or, up,
1: do you remember being affected by water shortages?
2: Yes, sure. Do remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But most remember is even the first is the typhoon. Typhoon at that time killed many people. Remember that evening, so strong wind the door and father put a bamboo stick to block onto the door and oh, he said, and then remember how strong wind one door at that time is, you know, and, and then shortage water, all the people wait four days for water
1: <laughs> when you were growing up did you feel that it was a hard life
2: a poor uh, life I at that time we everyone very similar nest people who very rich you know so uh, we get used to it and I don't think people think very hard, you know happy and all labor who very good they help each other and if the children they need to go out they would Bring the children to our home, and then we look after them. So oh, you okay. yeah, yeah. help each other, and don't lock the door. Don't, you don't see the door closing. That is a happy life, you know, going. Now, tell me about the bathrooms. The bathroom we have is in the middle, on the back of the park there. But the bathroom open, you know, man, and then one side is women and the men's side they have sometimes uh, uh, any people can walk in so we sometimes we see someone who take drugs injection or whatever you know we children we run in and look and then run away yeah what kind it's, of drugs oh i don't know i think opium or they burn it the powder they burn it on the secret paper okay. yeah burn it and then they hold a uh, Matchbox on the mouth and shut it. Yeah, it's, you just sit, look there and look at them and then run away. You know, so yeah, it's have good people there, but also have some, you know problems. Yeah.
1: Now, living in these public housing estates, of course, you also had people who would come and and sell their wares.
2: Yes, the Oliver, the decor. Airplane uh, Oliver,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, so they the call Oli- olive man, the airplane, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So it why, why do they call it that? They call it Airplane Oliver. Yeah, he saw Airplane uh, Oliver. And then everyone go out and watch, and then some people drop the coin, and then he would throw the Oliver up. You know, yeah. So yeah, he, would,
1: he would come with his olives, put them in a little what was it, a plastic bag or paper bag? Paper bag. Paper, paper bag in yeah, those days, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they would throw the coins down from the sixth floor, the fifth floor. Yes. Fifth, and then he would sort of use a catapult or something look, like that, a just a hand to throw he up this paper bag.
2: Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually he would get there, but sometimes if he missed, he would throw another one. Yeah, but someone would have a free, free sample, <laughs> right? What else did, could you buy? oh many people they bring around you know the sweet the, they call ding ding sweet you know they, they carry it in is i think nowadays i think of it is like a peanut sweet you know peanut sweet. and then he has a, a knocking like a hammer and a piece of uh, metal which is uh, he knocked it on ding 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 and then people he don't need to shout you know people will know ah oh, he's coming and then if you want to you pay him 10 20 cents and then he would use the piece of metal to knock it out yeah is the ding ding the, sweet ding man ding sweet man yeah it's <laughs> that can remember we had to try we had to buy some yeah, to yeah. eat you know so yeah. eating is very much in the mind
1: Yes, because now, I mean, Will, it's, it's of course, this weekend is the Mid-Autumn Festival. So we think about the lanterns and the moon cake, oh, yes. but take me back to your childhood. How did you celebrate Mid-Autumn Festival?
2: We, I think every family would have the moon cake, yeah. And at that time popular, you they you not buy box by box. It's in the year, beginning of the year, father go to the restaurant and then to buy like ticket. you know and then from the time coming they would get the box of the moon kick back yeah
1: so he would pay in vouchers
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yes, yeah. so yeah yeah every month yeah. how you know at that time popular when mid autumn festival come he bring back box and every children knock for the box of the moon cake. go for the bread they have a bread uh, with the toys and also the most unusual is the one it's a pig. <laughs>
1: so you had a, a bread that yeah. was done in the shape of a tortoise? Yeah,
2: and also yeah. the pig. But the pig was done, what, a real pig or? Uh, uh, no, 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 it's a, a, cake, like a, a, cake,
1: right.
2: yeah, a cake like a pig. But they put it into a, like a bamboo holding, you know, put it in. The children go for that and not go for the mooncake so much. <laughs> yeah,
1: interesting. The mooncake's probably seen as a more of an adult cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Now, your mum was also from yes. Uh, Fukien.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she also from Fukien, yeah. Yeah, so
1: tell me about the food that you had at
2: home. Oh, it's a big celebration. You know, at that day, we cooked all the food, whole table. You know, fish, crab, porn. Yeah, a lot of seafood. Yeah, all seafood, you know, and meat yeah all the things yes yes, yes.
1: there's a special way of making dumplings yes they're actually put in a meat skin in
2: uh yes it's not not a pastry yeah no yeah they not bread it's uh, meat and then put it into like a skin to cover and then to put another pot or everything in the middle yeah so
1: it's a fully
2: meat dumpling yeah yeah. and also the most important is the fishbowl, the 14 yes. fishbowl. Inside have meat. Yes. Yeah, the Cantonese one, they don't have meat inside. The 14 one, they put meat.
1: As well as fishbowl, as yes, well as fish.
2: On the fish, yeah. Oh, okay. The fish is on the outside, but in the middle.
1: I've been hearing about how your father began with wood carving and then worked in ivory. Yeah. He would also move on to jade carvings, didn't he? Yes.
2: The the J also yeah 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 all they they have been improved at that time they have also the tooth to carve the J he also have been carving J. I was going to say, did he do
1: it manually or did he later on?
2: I mean these days surely. Uh, the, uh, the J one is with electrical, yes, you know, the machine with the yes. machine, but need to have the base of how to carve before you can carve a figure. So I do keep some he carved. And we're not going to sell it just. Yes. Keep it. So yeah.
1: the, for the carving, I'm looking at them here. There's some green jade, lighter green jade. Can yeah. you tell me a little
2: bit about that? Oh, the the jade carving, the bigger piece is from China, and they are the jade from China. And then the on jewelry, we would the jade would be from Burma. It's called jade, yeah. And they are called nephra. It's a little bit softer. But nowadays, even this hardly have people in China carve anymore. I think it's nearly finished. <laughs> really?
1: As a skill? Yeah,
2: the, the skill, yeah. Now they use machine. Yeah. And they carve something more simple, not like we have here with uh, figures and lion and instant burner or like that you know so that also now hard to find
1: when you're growing up you're seeing your father first of all but he's carving wood. then he's carving ivory and of course that was a different era in terms of elephant ivory which has now been yeah it was banned after a certain year but he would then move uh, also did jade which is quite demanding how did you get into jewelry did you
2: study is just go with father and brother together to start the business so we beginning work for other people and then we start our own shop, our own business.
1: So you were based in the old Miramar old hometown? Murma. Old
2: Miramar. Old Miramar at that time is the old Miramar. And they say, some customer tell me, they say Miramar means the land you can see this water. And at that time in front there is not much building, but now you can't even see any of the water. <laughs> Yeah, and then from old Miramar they knocked down, and then we moved to new Miramar, mm-hmm. the one beside. And could you still see the water from there? Uh, no, no, <laughs> still cannot. No, no, at that time, already can't see anymore, you know, so, right. And what, what appeals to you when you're
1: working in jewellery, I mean, you have got you meet your customers, but you're also yeah. dealing in stones. And the key thing that I, I should emphasize here with your jewellery is it's that the pieces are completely original because it, you've got, you're working with artisans yes. to create. And so I'm looking at some very interestingly shaped gold rings right in yeah. front of me, but also you obviously work in a yes. number of different types of
2: stones. For you personally, what appeals to you about this work? Oh, the work we do is all by pieces one by one by hand in which we base on the stone and then we make the design and then we make the ring so it, everyone is individual and also sometimes some customer bring us a stone or the design we would make it yeah but sometimes some customers draw us the design and when we look at it we say it won't work because they're not collecting so it won't make the ring and then we would change a little bit the design And then still make the nice ring and so different too but from the time going now a lot of new idea have been in molding pressing now even 3d yeah but handmade it still have a live angle which is different to machine how how when you look at the thing The handmade one is like drawing, picture. If you use hand drawing, it looks different to the printing. That is the way different. One more active, more living. And so that's why we still do by hand, one by one. But time going, workers pass away, retire, and now only have only very few people, only we have. Yeah, the skills we, we change, don't they? There. But
1: and I love this idea yeah. that you've got these older. Are they men, women?
2: Yes, men, men, men. You've got yes.
1: these older men artisans yeah. who uh, craft these handmade. So, yeah. if you're handcrafting gold, what do you need to uh, use? Is it softer?
2: Yes, we use the 18 calico and also 14 calico to make the jewelry. And then we melt the gold, and then to add in the alloy to make to the standard. Like 18 is 75% gold in there, inside, not only, not just on the top. It's, and 14 k would be 58.5% of the gold in there. But some of the jewelry cannot make any more. Some design is no more making. Why? The worker is gone. All his tooth finished. There's tools? Tooth. They make their tooth to make the shape or whatever.
1: So they've
2: crafted their own tools to fit their own designs? Yeah, the tooth is not, you cannot buy it on the market. They specially make the tooth to create the pieces. That's incredible. Uh,
1: Yeah, It's a shame when you lose that that craftsmanship, but the men you work with, how old are they?
2: They're all over 50, over 50, so another 10, maybe 15 years and then would be no more, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't know, and young people, no coming to the job.
1: No? No, no interest in no. that?
2: Yeah, take too long to learn. Before, they take five years to learn.
1: Now over here you've also because what I like about your shop is also you've got a whole variety to look at I and mean, yes. we, we're looking down here at some jade ornaments. Uh, here is some they're the sort of lions that you'd the have in front of the, the speaking yes. lion that you'd yeah. have in front of the door, yeah. um, but I mean much smaller obviously for display. But over here the, the pendants, the large yeah. jade. Can you tell me about those? Ooh.
2: Those there is the jade pendant. Some is the jade and also some is the tiger eye stone and also red agate and also is the rose quartz and yeah, so rose quartz the colors, jade it's the pink color yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And, and are
1: they very, very traditional in their style
2: those are the traditional and those we have for a while yeah, nowadays not many calves anymore
1: So that's Sunny Co. talking about the changing traditions in making jewellery at his store in the Prudential Centre in Jordan. And I'll just return to Sunny Co. in a moment to talk more about how he celebrated the Mid Autumn or Moon Festival as a child. So, as well as eating mooncakes, Why do we carry lanterns at this time? These days, of course, children can get ones that are made out of plastic, often in the shape of cartoon characters, and it's always lovely to head to Victoria Park to look at everyone carrying lanterns. Me, I prefer the traditional ones made out of paper, with a candle inside. And in decades past, these would be the red ones that you still see today, that are like a concertina as you pull it out into the shape of a globe. Then other fan-fold lanterns include fruit, animal shapes such as rabbit, fish, butterflies and dragons. In the past, you could also make lanterns with pomelo peel. It's believed that the moon is at its brightest and fullest size at the festival, coinciding with harvest time in the middle of autumn. Traditionally, the lanterns are there to light people's paths to prosperity and good fortune. And now back to Sunny Co. For his recollections,
2: this weekend only now is only me and wife here. We still we have been prepared a lot of food, still cooking. Yeah, that's all. Prepare a lot of food. That's how Hong Kong.
1: But also, um, is it is it again? Uh, food from Fujian province, Fukunese
2: food? Uh, yes, we, we already, that's why I just show you the picture. That is. Oh,
1: you're done, right. Yeah, that done is the, the dumpling.
2: Yeah, oh, you've already done we, the
1: dumplings. a right. lot of
2: work. So yes. We do make more, and then so we can have it today and also on the day.
1: You've made your meat dumplings yeah, already. That's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, as a child, did you also carry lanterns?
2: Yes, oh, children like lanterns a lot. But many old lambtons, nowadays you don't see many. They are now more modern, the lantern. Before paper, also, the most is the rabbit, the one which had the wheel, you pull them, run around, you know. But it's you said, say about yeah. the
1: rabbit, what did you do with the rabbit? You pulled it a rabbit, along.
2: A rabbit with the rabbit shape.
1: Yeah.
2: And then with the wheel on, and then you put the candle inside, and then pull that rabbit candle pull around run around they suppose there is uh, in the legend is the there's rabbit there and a tree and a man who humming the tree and also the lady there the fairy all know. on the moon all on the moon <laughs> yeah
1: right. here's wishing you and your wife a very happy mid-autumn festival sir
2: and you too yeah everyone have happy moon festival and and lots of mooncakes. Yes, uh, <laughs> not too much, not too much, yeah.
1: <laughs> My thanks there to Sonny Coe of Sunny Jewellery and Arts Company in the Prudential Centre at Jordan, talking there on his childhood memories and handcrafted jewellery. During our interview, Sonny talked about how he grew up in an early public housing estate. The man who was largely seen as the architect of Hong Kong's post-war public housing was Michael Wright, who had become the Director of Public Works in the 1960s. He was born in 1912 on the Peak and after the Second World War would use his architectural skills to help oversee the design of the early housing for tens of thousands of people who had come from the mainland and were largely living in unsafe squatter huts on the hillsides. I interviewed Michael Wright in September 2017 when he was 105 and living in London. Here he explains about that early public housing he helped
0: to oversee. I didn't design any of the schemes because we always appointed a private architect. But, you know, we would comment on the plans. So I was involved, with a backroom boy in a way, working with the architects and telling them what we wanted to do. There were one or two experiments we tried, and not all of them were successful. I think there was one where it's round a courtyard with an internal light well and I don't think that was successful. What they tended to be was a corridor at the back and then the buildings. Whereas in resettlement, the corridor came down the middle and there were rooms on both sides.
1: So uh, you were involved in the early resettlement flats? Uh,
0: yes, yes.
1: So can you describe those to me?
0: Resettlement flats were born out of the May fire and in fact, I wasn't there in Hong Kong at the time I was on leave when the actual fire took place. The action chief architect, a man called George Norton, who was a very, very good, practical architect, looked like me, I like to think. I was what i call the short-haired architect. I wasn't arty crafty, and I believed in getting on with the job and not a lot of fancy stuff. And George was the same. And the first thing was that they built what were called Bowering Bungalows. Bowering was the director of public works and the Bowering bungalows were in fact two-storey buildings walk up and they just had a central corridor and rooms on both sides to get people off the street and at the same time, these were being built Designed the six-storey blocks which were very basic and they had a central corridor, balconies all the way round I think they were 12 12 feet, 12 by 10 I think the thing was 25 square feet per person and the idea was for five people, I think. I can't remember the full details now. But there were single rooms entered from a central corridor with not windows, just wooden shutters. And then, again, they had the inevitable communal lavatories. And I think no cooking facilities. I think the cooking they did on the balcony. And they were very, very crude. And we turned them out at a... Well, they could be, but they're so basic they only took about four weeks to build. You know, they could do about two stories a week. The bare concrete walls, there's nothing fancy about them, no finishing, no plaster. And I can remember that when we built quite a few, Bishop Hall was very um, critical of the Hong Kong government in many ways, and he expressed a wish to be shown round resettlement blocks. And I thought this was going to be a bit difficult. And I took him round we spent half an hour going away. We had a school on the top rooftop, we had a school at each end and between the schools there was a playground on the roof of the children.
1: And what area was that? What district?
0: Uh, anywhere where there was a fire. So, so it started off in Shepkit-May where the fire had been and I think we cut down the hillside and formed. Most of them were in the hillside sites where we formed site formation. And one of them, dear Shepgit Bay, we found an ancient tomb, which is quite interesting. I can remember, I think the clerk of work said they'd found this tunnel going through a nice little brick tomb and the then commissioner for resettlement said so forget about the damn thing put it down and I said no we can't and so we had to not build that block and I think the tomb is still there and quite a, a tourist attraction. Going back to Bishop Hall took him round and you know, he said this is the best thing the Hong Kong government has ever done. You know, again because it's of getting people off the street
1: so that was the early resettlement flats post war.
0: We must have built, I, know, I would say, a hundred resettlement flats, resettlement blocks. No, we had them all uh, because we went on building them for ten years, we, uh, and they were still being built when I left. So you were involved
1: after it May fire in at Christmas 1953. You would then continue on with early resettlement flats for
0: we about. Went, we went year. on. We went uh, We had a special unit of the PWD, a man called Colin Bramble was the architect in charge. Not only did we have the resettlement areas, but also a slightly better stage called government no cost housing, which was, again, one room with a kitchen and a WC, and we built many dozen of these low-cost housing flats. And then we had a slightly higher one, and they, again, had a slightly... Improved the one room with the W C and the and the shower and the kitchen.
1: Because of course, in the early resettlement flats, they'd have had to do some of that outside.
0: Those was just communal lavatories and um, communal. In fact, I think washing, I think, was left to them to sort it out. No, they had taps. I think there and and they could wash in their own rooms. Yes, yeah, not easy. They were very 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 basic, but at least they got them off the off the hillside.
1: So you were doing schools.
0: School. We did one or two prestigious jobs like the city hall. Now, so the one of the architects of the city hall, the increased population and increased demands for more facilities, that the schools in particular, um, secondary schools and primary schools, we must have built fifty, sixty of them, I should think.
1: Now, one of the interviews I've done for Hong Kong Heritage is uh, Nancy Kwan, who played Susie Wong.
0: Yes, I knew her father, Honky, was a, a, a fellow architect, and um, he, we, we were great friends. we um, I won't say... He, he, I was seriously thought sort of living with him. So, um, his first wife was a um, European, and Nancy was half and half. And then, I think, the first wife left him for a German, came out to Hong Kong with him, and then left him. And then he married a Chinese girl, and, and I think was much happier. But he was a great gambler, and I remember Honky going to call on him once, and he said, come on, Michael, come and join us. I said, Honky. And like, oh, he said, I'll carry you. It was not peanuts. They were just choking with thousands of dollars at a time going. I said, no, Honky. He was. I think he ended up by being a bit broke because he was a great gambler, he so was you- a very nice man.
1: So you had to, in Hong Kong, you had to avoid gambling. Uh, What were your hobbies?
0: (laughs) Well, that's certainly not gambling. I was a bad cricketer. (laughs) Michael Wright there.
1: If you walk to the western side of Central, you'll come across Wingley Street, a lovely street which I visited in 2010 with the convener of the Central and Western Concern Group, Katie Law who helped to conserve the street when it was taken over by the Urban Renewal Authority. A number of the people who lived there at the time had their own trades, including Mr Lee, who had a large German printer. He since passed away. Some of the other neighbours have moved to other districts. Katie Law and I stopped off to see a silversmith along the street. <coughs>
3: My name is Yip Kam Tim. I've been working in this area for over 60 years. I'm one of the few traditional silversmiths left in Hong Kong, but I don't make a lot of money out of it. I came from Guangzhou in mainland China at the age of 14 at the end of the Sino-Japanese War in 1945. Life was really hard and it was difficult to survive. I was already working as an apprentice under a master and I followed him down here. I learnt the trade by watching other silversmiths. Now I'm 77. I make silver cups and trophies. The rent is low and I enjoy working on this street.
1: Just two doors down from silversmith Yip Kam Tim is producer Michael Wong. Five years ago, I was looking for a a studio because when I was in Wan Chai, my my studio was used to be in Wan Chai they they raise my my rent, I have to go. That's all I have no choice. And then and uh some because even at that time I do a lot of shooting here. Location shooting. So I find this is very nice here. It's good for uh good for my job. I mean I mean uh it makes me feel more creative. <laughs> Among some of the other tenants that you've spoken to, um, there's a, a 93-year-old lady. Um, there's also a lady who has her autistic nephew who lives on the street. Now, what were their stories?
4: Well, uh, Miss Lowe, who has an, uh, a nephew to take care of, she is also relieved because um, she really wants to stay in this uh, building, in this area, so that, you know, her life will be easier because her, her nephew can know the way to go to school because he, he can only you know connect this area and he's more happy in here. Wingley Street how did it start off what were the
1: businesses around this area
4: Well they, they were the business here are mostly printers. Yeah, it's like a printing street, Wingley Street. I think 10 or nine out of the 12 numbers, the ground floor shops are printers. So today there are um, still Mr. Lee at number one to two Wingley Street and there is a Ms. Yam at number seven Wingley Street who are still operating as printers. And um, there are also Quite um, a few craftsmen around the area. Uh, Mr. Yip, who is the the silversmith, is now is still working. And recently, there is a, a leather workshop, which is opened at um, directly opposite Mr. Lee. So I I think um, there is quite a strong tradition of um, printing and craftsmanship. You know, surrounding this area, and and you know, nowadays when people come to Wingley Street, they still can uh, feel the the flavor of the street and um, see you know the you know the old days.
1: A walk along Wingley Street. My friend James Burden actually provided the silversmith voiceover in English. There, antiquarian Jonathan Wattis has helped educate me about maps, paintings, postcards, posters, panoramas, lithographs and photographs of Hong Kong and its surroundings. Here, he talks about early Hong Kong photography.
3: I was fortunate enough to be in London a few weeks ago. There are a lot of antique fairs on early June and we, we make a pilgrimage to them every year. We go and uh, visit a number of antiquarian book fairs and uh, print fairs and there's a wonderful map fair at the Royal Geographical Society. I also met a few collectors. Um, I was very lucky to buy three photographs by one of the earliest photographers to set up a studio in Canton and Hong Kong and his name is Milton Miller. Little was known about Milton Miller until recently and uh, articles have been written and books have been written particularly in the last year and the getty institute published a couple of books and one was uh, had a number of information a lot of information on miller who came from california and he actually had a studio in san francisco i believe in sort of 1856 and he came to canton 1860 and then also set up a studio in in hong kong about 1862 to 1864 And I was fortunate enough to buy this very rare photograph, which I'm still researching, which is a view of Bonham Strand. That's where my research has pointed me so far, and I'm still to identify which buildings they are. One of them may be the Harbour Master's Office, and it's a view about 1862 on showing part of Hong Kong's, one of its earliest forms of reclamation in the city.
1: So Milton Miller came to Canton and also visited Hong Kong. Was he here for quite some time?
3: He was here in Hong Kong and Canton, but Hong Kong most of the time, between 1860 and 1864. There is a story that ran in one of the newspapers in Canton that mentions that he was looking for people to help him to find his plates, glass plates, which have recently been stolen, and that story ran in 1861, I believe, and I think at that point he moved to Hong Kong, and uh, so he was in Hong Kong in in the early 1860s, but he did know how to uh, take very good photographs, and he produced some rather wonderful uh, plates and prints of both buildings and also countryside, and also portraits.
1: Now, who was Milton Miller's audience? Was he doing this for an architect's office? Was he doing this uh, for travel guides?
3: He had a studio in in Hong Kong for a short while, and uh, he would have done it for probably private individuals. He might have done some corporate work, but uh, certainly he would have been commissioned to, to take portraits, and he may well have been commissioned by companies to take pictures such as the one we have over here in the corner. And if you look at it, you can see their buildings... And, and they're on the waterfront.
1: Oh, the original waterfront. This,
3: this No, this is the Bonham Strand waterfront. Right. So the prior on Bonham Strand... Was oh, so this in. has
1: already had some reclamation.
3: This has had reclamation which went in and the, 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 the Bonham Strand reclamation was built um, after there was a great fire in Hong Kong in December 1851 and um, m- over 400 houses were destroyed north of uh, Queen's Road in Shung Wan and as a result they had to rebuild that part of the city and they also reclaimed some land and uh, two streets were named one Bonham Strand after the Governor Bonham at the time and the other one after Jervois, who was a a general in charge of the Royal Engineers who tried to quell the big fire that made the destruction. So so this is a view we have of Bonham Strand and these buildings uh, are early 1860s and they're rather grand colonial buildings but it's, it's about 1862 and you can see there's a road or prior in front Well, this predates the prior which went along the waterfront of Hong Kong uh, in the central area, which was built in 1864. So this is a very early prior.
1: Now, of course, a lot of these early photographs, this one we're looking at dates to 1862. Uh, These are done with something with silver and something with plates, isn't it?
3: Yes, it is. (laughs) Well, they they had a big box uh, camera they would use and they, they had glass plates which they would insert and take the picture using these glass plates, and the image would be held onto that plate, and they would print from the glass plate. And at this time, they were using a, a printing method called albumin print, where they, with, with, with a, a very high-quality paper, they would sensitize the paper with albumin, which is like egg white, um, and as a result, they would print a very high-quality image, which if you get a very good definition picture like this one particularly, you can probably blow it up to about four to six times the size and so almost have a huge poster of it because the and it will still retain a very sharp image. The quality is very good.
1: Yeah, so you've got 27 photographs along this wall of the peak and they're absolutely fascinating because you've got unknown photographer, unknown photographer basically because of these early photographs with a very bare peak I mean, so yeah. you look at it and uh, interestingly also it's very rocky there's not many trees there
3: not many trees. Certainly in the earlier ones um, when you get nearer to 1900 there, there are many more trees but uh, certainly the ones that are the 1860s, 70s there are indigenous trees but a lot of the trees that were bought in were, were being planted around this time I believe.
1: So the early ones are showing just these thatched bit of housing but uh, you've also got some early bungalows. They're quite grand aren't they?
3: they are they are very grand and and it's a sort of mistake in many ways because they call the early houses on the peak bungalows well you and I know that a bungalow is a single story house but often they are entitled bungalows on the peak and they may be two story or three stories well from two stories but uh, and there are the odd, there, there are a few bungalows in among them
1: so your 27 photographs of the peak the peak collection go from 1869 to 1900 so yes, you do. You do because the peak tram would have been 1888. So you've got that that on there, have you? We
3: have. Yes, the peak tram it, it makes a significant uh, difference to the bu- the building on the peak. So many more houses start being developed because clearly in the early days it was quite inaccessible apart from a few people struggling up the hills in a sedan chair so with the peak tram they could commute i suppose and that made made it much easier to have houses and they could be down in town in 10 minute ride Uh, very quick very easy
1: now when i was talking to you a few months ago we were discussing the painter august bourget who was also in hong kong a little bit earlier, but in the mid 19th century. Do you think that these early photographers, you're saying little was known about Milton Miller, it's now starting to appear a bit more in books. Do you think the early photographers get the kind of same respect as the early painters?
3: Um, Not quite yet, but it's it's an evolving thing and it's developing because more information is coming out on these people and more people are doing research on the early photographers. So uh, there's an interesting transition. The early exhibition that was on recently at the Getty Institute in California was entitled Brush and Shutter. And so that was all about the transition of these uh, early artist studios... In Hong Kong, and in Shanghai in this case, but in Hong Kong certainly, uh, they had studios which were to paint on oils, ships' portraits, people's portraits. And, and sometimes these were done by hand earlier on because they would draw them. And then when photography came in, they often doubled up. So they were both painting studios and photography studios. So the the, the artists would be doing both things.
1: Jonathan is there. My thanks to all those who give their skills and knowledge to the programme. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.
0: and Hong Kong are connected. We all do our best with